Our Lord and our God, bless us now as we turn to thy word, and grant us thy peace. We thank thee, our Father, that thou art our sufficiency. We thank thee that we can come to thee, casting our every care upon thee, knowing thou carest for us. And so, our Father, we come. We come to thee with all our needs, with all our joys and our sorrows. Knowing our Father, that thou carest for us and will sustain us and bless us. And make the way straight before us. Speak to us, our Father, now the words that we need. And bless us throughout the week. In Jesus' name, Amen. This afternoon we shall interrupt our series in Genesis to deal with a subject one of you suggested that we explore a bit, the biblical doctrine of love. Let us turn, therefore, to Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another has fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. One of the most abused and misused passages of scripture is precisely this one. Thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. It is extensively used by socialists and communists to justify their particular dogmas. And we are told that truly to love our neighbors means sharing our property with them, sharing, if need be, our homes with them, being ready to make them, as it were, one family with us. And so we are told to obey our Lord's commandment, as well as the commandment of Moses, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, means socialism or communism. As a further evidence of this, or ostensible evidence, these people will tell you that the book of Acts in the second chapter gives us evidence that the early church was communistic, because we are told, did not the disciples sell what they had and share all things in common? 
Well, unfortunately for their case, first of all, this passage in Acts is the only such reference in all of Scripture, and it refers only to the church in Jerusalem. Second, there was no requirement that anyone sell his property or that he share. Third, the reason why they sold their property in the Jerusalem church was a very simple one. And it had nothing to do with economics. It had nothing to do with socialism. Our Lord had told the disciples that Jerusalem was to be destroyed. That for their rejection of him, Jerusalem would be destroyed and not one stone would be left standing upon another. And he warned his disciples that after his death and resurrection, not too many years would pass before these things would happen. And he warned them to take heed of the signs he was going to give them of the fall of Jerusalem and to flee. And it is significant, and we have this from historical records, that not one Christian died during the Jewish-Roman War, which was the bloodiest, the most ruthless, and the most devastating war in all of history. Neither World War I nor World War II can compare with the Jewish-Roman War in its devastation and in the death toll. Now, the disciples knew this was going to take place. As a result, there was no point in owning property in a city that was doomed because they believed it to be doomed since God the Son had so declared it. As a result, they liquidated their assets Many of them moved into other areas of the Near East. Those who remained, remained for missionary purposes. They were there to witness to their friends and relatives that unless they believed in Christ, the end was coming. They were to be destroyed in Jerusalem and in Judea. So that they shared, many of them, their funds in order to further the missionary work of the church. And then the sharing was voluntary. So this text does not stand. It has no reference to anything economic. But now what about the central verse? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We are told that being a good neighbor means sharing. And such things as the UN International Bank for Reconstruction and Development have been called by our politicians as examples of the good neighbor policy at work. We instituted some years ago a good neighbor policy with South America, and the good neighbor policy simply meant that we were going to guarantee each of those countries so many millions a year. This was the conception of being a good neighbor. Being a good neighbor means 
any quest our politicians would tell us to share what we have with everyone and loving everybody. Well, I submit that if we are good Christians, we cannot love everyone. And the biblical word for love, and there are several words in Greek alone, let alone Hebrew, for love, does not mean what our English word means. Our English word for love means something that is purely emotional. But the physical word has an entirely juridical framework, as we shall see. And this is true of many of the words in the Bible. Forgiveness, for example, in the Bible is entirely a juridical term. And there are two meanings of the word forgiveness in the Greek. One is charges deferred because satisfaction has been rendered. In other words, restitution has been made. And therefore, the debt or the crime is wiped out. So that when we have forgiveness, through Jesus Christ, it means that through Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice, restitution has been made and our sins are blotted out in the sight of God. The other meaning, and this is used only once in the New Testament in this sense, is charges deferred for the time being. And our Lord used it in this sense when on the cross he said, looking at the mob and the Roman soldiers, Father, forgive them. In other words, defer the charges for the time being, for they know not what they do. The words are not emotional, but in their context and in their original meaning, they are juridical. Our modern world has been affected by the Enlightenment and by Romanticism, and it has eroded all these meanings of words and left only a, an emotional meaning. Are we to love everybody? Well, the answer is, look at some of the people in the world. Look at the Papans, for example, of North India, and now mainly North Pakistan. It would be impossible in any mixed company to describe even the elementary facts of Pagan society. Among the Pagans, a man it can be called relatively human and normal if he is merely a homosexual, because their conception of real pleasure is bestiality. Their concept of life is so depraved that you don't find records of the pagans in the libraries or travelogues about them. First, no one can get in and out of the pagan culture without serious damage. Second, it is not printable. Are we to love creatures like that? Well, what does the Bible mean when it says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself? Now, 
This appears repeatedly in Scripture, but the three main uses of this text are first in Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, we are told that we shall should love our neighbors ourselves, and we are told then it means the keeping of the law in relationship to him. And the neighbor is defined even as our enemy. And Moses says that this applies to the stranger within thy gates, the foreigner. And it applies, he says, also to the Egyptian, which meant really their enemy. But it meant the keeping of the law in relationship to all men. Now our Lord again in Matthew 19 cites this commandment, Thou shalt love thy neighbor thyself. And he says it is a summary of the second table of the law. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, steal, bear false witness, and thou shalt not covet. And again, here in Romans 13, Paul tells us the same thing. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself very clearly defined for us. What does it mean to love our neighbor? For, as Moses makes clear, our neighbor includes our enemy. It means to keep the second table of the law. Now, thou shalt not kill. You have to respect your neighbors and your enemies right to life. Thou shalt not bear, as thou shalt not commit adultery. You must respect the integrity of your neighbors and your enemies' home. Thou shalt not steal. Respect the integrity, the God-given right of your neighbor to his property. Thou shalt not bear false witness. You must respect the integrity of your neighbor's reputation and bear no false witness against it. And finally, thou shalt not covet. In other words, you must obey this commandment of God in relationship to your neighbor, not only in word and deed, but in thought as well. This means, therefore, that you can think your neighbor is a stinker. But if you respect his right to life, to the integrity of his home, to his property, to his reputation in word, thought, and deed. You have kept the commandment. And the commandment does not ask you for more than that. It doesn't ask you to love a man who is evil emotionally. It does not ask you to share your property with him. It asks you to respect his right to property. This is a vast world away from what these people would tell us this commandment means. And so it is that we 
find nothing but a perversion of the Bible wherever, whether it be from a socialist out of the pulpit or one in the pulpit. We are, we are told that loving our neighbor as ourselves means the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and it means sharing our property with our neighbor or being willing to live with him. This is all nonsense. It is not for a moment envisioned by Scripture. We have kept the law. If we have worked no ill to our neighbor, Paul says, in this respect, in keeping the second table of the law, in respecting his right to life, his home, his property, his reputation in word, thought, and deed. But unfortunately, this which is the so obvious meaning of the text, once you see it, is not taught in our seminary. And so even well-meaning ministers go out and preach not knowing how to handle these socialists when they pervert the word of God, when the very obvious meaning of scripture runs contrary to it. And make no mistake about it, we are very easily brainwashed into seeing things in the Bible that aren't there. Ask people how many wise men there were that came to Bethlehem, and they'll tell you three. Because pictures usually portray three. Because the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are, decided to have three because they couldn't have too many verses. One king singing, uh, having a first verse and a second verse and a third verse. Whereas the text of scripture simply says that wise men came from the east bearing gifts. There were three gifts or three kinds of gifts to signify his kingship his status as the prophet and as the great high priest, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But we're not told how many. There could have been a goodly number of them. And yet, nine out of ten people will say there were three. And similarly, most people say, well, the Bible says to love our neighbor means to I guess to share with them that I don't know how to square that with being a conservative. Well, it doesn't say anything about sharing. Thus, this statement, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, has been historically, in our Western Christian culture, the foundation of true civil liberty. And our civil liberties were the outgrowth of this requirement. What does the Bill of Rights assure us except this? To recognize the immunity of others and to guarantee it to them and to ourselves that we have these immunities of life, of home, of property, and of reputation. And if our neighbors' immunities are attacked, we have an obligation to defend that. This is the implication. 
And this, of course, is the meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan was going down the road, and he saw a Jew who had been robbed and beaten and left unconscious by the side of the road. Now, the Samaritans and Jews were not on speaking terms. They didn't have any use for each other. The Samaritan picked up that unconscious Jew, put him on his ass or horse, as the case may have been, took him to an innkeeper and left money for his care and went off. He did not feel that he was under any obligation to associate with a Jew. He didn't like them. They disagreed religiously. They had no deal. But he felt, since the Samaritan kept the law, an obligation to help a man who was in need, whose right to property and life had been violated. He didn't share anything with the man. He simply extended mercy to him and his protection where the law had, uh, had not been able to otherwise. So, the parable does not say the Samaritan or the Jew decided that the other was right and they had to have uh, joint services thereafter. Or that they had to uh, say, well, perhaps there's some truth in the other's position. No, they went their own way. But they did abide by the law in their dealings one with another. The good Samaritan was a good neighbor. Thus, this commandment requires of us not communism, <coughs> but a respect for others' liberties. And the requirement that through our law, we bring about a respect for our own immunities and liberties. Now, one of the reasons why the socialists have been so ready to see love as a cure-all is because they do not see evil as a positive force. For many in their thinking, evil is merely the absence of good. It's a lack. Now, if evil is merely a lack, a mere negation, then the remedy for evil is to supply that lack. In other words, to provide the opposite of evil, which is love. So that if there is something wrong with a child, if he is delinquent, well, then love him a little more. And if the criminal is giving you a problem, love him a little more. Or if some minority group is delinquent, love them a little more. And the answer is more and more love. Which means more and more a subsidy to evil. And this is what is destroying our society today. This ungodly, anti-Christian conception of love. So that we're unwilling to face a problem and say, these people are evil, 
Evil is not merely a lack, it is a positive choice of something that is anti-God and anti-holy, anti-good. And so people cannot call a spade a spade. I was very, very much abused, grimly abused, to see in the people's world their ridicule of the idea that the Watts situation was a riot. And they remarked on how absurd the newspapers were and unwilling to face up to reality in calling that a riot. They said it is an uprising, a revolution in other words. I was very much interested when I was up north this week to speak, to learn and to see the bumper stickers which are appearing in San Francisco throughout the colored areas, stuck on walls, on telephones, something that is wrong. It is a fault which can only be met by the law and love of neighbor requires the law. And it declares the second table of the law, which requires the protection of life, of home, of property, and of reputation, in word, thought, and deed, must be the standard of a godly society. So our present attitude is anti-Christian. And our present conception of love as we find it in society at large is anti. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now that's a significant point. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, the Bible tells us two things about the man who is a sinner, the man who is apart from God. First, he has an obligation under God before he can be changed, to hate himself because his self is sinful. It is in rebellion against God. Moreover, we are told that he does hate himself, although he will not admit it. He hates himself not unto repentance, but unto death. And our Lord said long ago, speaking as wisdom in the book of Proverbs, all they that hate me love death. But when we are regenerated, when we become new creatures in Christ, the new man in us is now Jesus Christ, is he not? So that the old self, the old Adam in us, is judicially dead. Not completely dead while we're in this life, but judicially in the sight of God, he is dead, and the new man, Jesus Christ, is very much alive. And so now... We cannot despise ourselves because we are members of Christ's body. The Holy Spirit indwells within us, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are to respect ourselves. This is impossible for sinful men. The sinner loves his life, but he hates himself. He hates his own rights and he hates the rights of others. 
He is like a profane Esau, despising his birthright, having within himself a root of bitterness. And he is perpetually ready to trade his birthright, his God-given liberties, for a mess of pottage. And so ungodly men are perpetually selling themselves to tyrants and to dictators, in return for a security that man cannot have apart from God. They go to socialism for religious reasons. They want security. But we affirmed as a nation years ago that in God we trust, which meant that we don't find our security in the state, but in God. Under God in our liberty and in our independent care of ourselves. But ungodly men hate themselves. Therefore, they cannot love others. They hate their own life, their property, their home. And they're continually violating the sanctity of their home. They're continually abusing their bodies. And they despise their property. So how can they respect the rights of others? One of the things that I learned as I worked on my study of Freud and read for years and years extensively in psychiatric literature was fact that this is the basic fact about those whom psychiatrists call mentally ill. They hate themselves. And this is carried out in many, many ways. They bring trouble on themselves. They bring sickness upon themselves. They bring judgment upon themselves. And this is not enough. In confinement, they do all kinds of things deliberately to defile themselves. And as one psychiatrist wrote, and he was definitely anti-Christian, it is their purpose to destroy whatever suggests the image of God in themselves. Man is at war with himself when he is apart from God. He cannot love himself. And if he does not love himself, which means loving his life, his property, his home, his reputation, how can he have any respect for these things in others? Only he who loves God, which means keeping the first table of the law because to love the Lord our God with our whole heart, mind, and being means keeping the first table of the law. And loving our neighbors ourselves means keeping the second table of the law. Only one who loves God can love his neighbor for himself. <coughs> when he loves God, then he also loves God's creation and God's creatures. And he shows respect for the word of God, for the works of God, and for the image of God in himself and in others. 
If any man says that he loves God and hates his brother and denies him his immunities and privileges under God, John declares he is a liar. We cannot love God without loving our neighbor and ourselves and respecting our neighbor's rights and our own. Therefore, our Lord emphasized and even as the prophets of old, the apostles also emphasized the commandments, declaring, Hear ye the Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and being. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This is the summary and the summation of the law. And this is, therefore, a plain declaration that to love God we must obey the laws of God and to love our neighbor we must obey the laws of God. But love is never separated from law and it is not to be confused with emotionalism or for the toleration of evil. Let us pray. We thank thee, our God, that thy word is true. We thank thee for the plain speaking of thy word. And we pray, our Father, that thou wouldst reestablish us in our society, our country, on thy truth, thy law, that again true civil liberties may flourish, that again respect for thy word, for life, for property, for home, for reputation, may again flourish in our land. We thank thee, our Father, Thou hast established us in Jesus Christ, in Thy word and in Thy thought. Prosper us therein. Grant that day by day we increase and abound unto Thee, and that we become in power and in truth Thy saving right, through whom shall be reestablished this republic as a Christian and a true order that we may enjoy the glorious liberty of the gospel God. Bless us with its purpose in Now, are there any questions concerning this subject? Opposition question that came up about the possibility that God gives us a choice. Do you have to comment on that? Uh, that free will. The idea was that there is no choice in God, but we can accept 
good word or suffer. There's no choice to be or good. Oh, this is the question with respect to free will. At a later date, we will go into that subject, but briefly, this is the answer. It involves some very complicated philosophy to understand it. We are asked to believe it by faith, but it's briefly this. If you deny predestination, you deny free will. Because it's only in the world of the total determination of God that secondary causes can be valid. In other words, the freedom of second cause is that man is a second cause. We are not a first cause. We are not God. The freedom of second causes is only possible as there is the total determination of primary causes. Only if we have a world of law and order. And this was the thing that destroyed the ancient world. They affirmed total freedom without any divine predestination. But the minute they affirm freedom without God and without this total predestination, they ended up immediately in the destruction of man's freedom. Because then man was totally subject to uh, natural forces, environment, heredity, everything. So that, first of all, we are asked by faith to believe both that we are free and we are responsible. That when we choose, we choose between good and evil, validly. Second, that God from the beginning ordained all things. And as scripture says, known unto God from the beginning of the world are all his works. And he is not merely foreknowledge whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate. So both our responsibility and free will of a secondary God and God's total free destination are affirmed by scripture. Now, as I've indicated, I will go into that much later, sometime in the spring, when we take up Romans and consider this and other of uh, some of the basic aspects of our faith. Yes. Uh, require pacifism of us. 
Well, if the man can tell thee to go one mile, go with him twain, and he might be on one feet, turn the other feet, and so on. So that we are told by many that pacifism is obligatory upon Christians. Now, this is not the meaning of this famous passage in Matthew 5. What does it say? Well, the word that is used there in Matthew 5, in each instance, is a situation of compulsion. And the word is translated, if they compel thee to go one mile, is the word for the required and obligatory draft which the Roman government could place on anyone. It could draft you at a moment's notice. All needed was a legionnaire or some other official life status. In any emergency, to put his hand upon you and say, we're drafting you for this particular job immediately. This is not entirely gone in our culture, by the way. I've lived in the inner mountain area where they had under federal law, similar requirements in case of forest fire. And I have on occasion been told immediately if anyone passing through an area where there's a fire, cars stop and you're told there's a forest fire, grab a shovel and get going. And you're liable to prison and a very severe sentence if you continue. Now this was required in the Roman Empire. And the Judeans were fighting this tooth and nail. Well, the obvious reaction of the Romans was when they put their hand on a Jew's shoulder and said, all right, do this. And he resisted was to compel them not to go the one mile, but to go ten. And so Jesus is counseling realism there. And he said, you're far better off you go the second time. Don't be a fool in this situation. If he's going to strike you on the one feet, then turn the other. There's no point in resisting. If you are cooperative, you'll get further. If he's going to take your coat, give him your coat also. He can take everything, and if you're cooperative with these people, you can do better. Now, this was social realism, and our Lord went on to say, Be wise as serpents and gentle as dust. And he also said, The children of darkness are wiser than the children of light. In other words, they're practical. So, be practical without sacrificing the principle. But there are people who try to make our faith into something that's unpractical and unrealistic as they can, and they feel the more impractical you get, the holier you are. That's nonsense. Now, what are we to do in the way of resistance? What kind of resistance is godless? We are told we cannot resist evil in any ungodly way. First of all, this matter was gone over, by the way, at great length during the period of the Reformation as well as before, 
and the classic book on it is Vindicii Contemporanus, and although this book is practically unheard of, it was the most read book at the time of the American War of Independence. John Adams said it was the book which had brought about the War of Independence. And yet you never hear about it. You hear about Tom Paine's common sense, and we're told that that caused the War of Independence, and nobody tells you the obvious fact that when Tom Paine came to this country, the, uh, the First Continental Congress had been sitting for four months, and the break was already underway, so that he got here after the thing was underway. He had nothing to do with Dartmouth, and he left in disgust before it was over. Now, what did Vindicii Consequentorano declare? That obedience to parents could be disobedience to God. To obey that which was contrary to God could be disobedience to God. Therefore, it was more important to obey God than to obey men. Now, we are under covenant with God through the church, which means we must see this commandment with respect to worship. We are under covenant with God in the civil order of the state, whose purpose is to establish law and order, and we are to obey as far as is humanly possible, unless it is against the law of God. Now, we are in covenant with God in marriage also. Marriage is a covenant, and most of the marriage forms that, uh, exist today involved in the vow taken by bride and groom that I do vow and covenant before God and these to take thee, and so on. What does the word covenant mean? Well, here is an order under God and under his law. Now, supposing the point comes in your life where there is a conflict between which set of laws or which covenants are going to obey. You have a covenant with God, the church. You have a covenant with the state, God's order for law. You have a covenant with your family. But supposing the state requires something of you that is going to be the destruction of your family. Which covenant are you going to obey? For well, that which requires of you, that which is faithful to God. So if the state comes in and wants to take away your children, it would be a sin to obey the state because you would be disobeying God. You would be faithless to your covenant vow. You have then a godly requirement to resist. So that the trouble with some of these people who are pacifists is that they say there's only one law you should keep, the law of the state, your obligation to state. And they forget about your obligation to the church and to your family and to every other sphere of life. And they make that the only law of the state. Any other questions?
A very good point. I've been asked to relate just what it takes to be a communist today. To join the Communist Party is a very serious matter, not lightly done. You simply don't go up and sign a card and say you want to be a communist. To be a member of the party, you pledge, first of all, a percentage of your income, and you are subject to special assessment as occasion and need requires, so that you give and you give heavily, very heavily. It has not been unusual for some communists to find that it's necessary for their wives to go to work in order to support them in their membership. These people are dedicated. Second, you must study. This means that you are given certain books of Marx and Lenin to read. And you go to a class and you are are thrilled on these things, and you take examinations on them, and you've got to know the answers. You've got to know them so thoroughly that they come out just like that. You don't have to think about it. Those answers are a part of your being. And I have seen books of Marx and Lenin that were owned by ex-members of the party. It's very interesting. Some of these are simple working men who are very, very limited intelligence. And yet, those writings were very involved ones that uh, graduate students read in universities. But those men, whether they were Negro longshoremen or whatever they were, teamsters, had to sit down and spend hours and hours, night after night, studying those books, getting the answers down pat. And if they didn't have them, they weren't told, well, we'll let you buy because you've been at this for quite a few months now, night after night. No. They had to go home and be drilled on it further until they had the answers. That's why it is so exceedingly difficult for a communist to leave the party. He has been drilled in these answers until they are a part of his being. They are second nature to him. And he has been drilled in giving sacrificially and putting his whole life into this so that it's a deep wrench for him to break away with it. It's almost like dying, as some of them say. Now contrast that with what it takes to be a church member these days. All you have to do is to indicate you're interested and they're begging you to come in. In fact, if you aren't interested, they're begging you to come in in many instances. And you don't have to believe anything. In fact, I know one pastor of whom I have a very low opinion. 
who preached a sermon, and it is on the Tower of Babel. And he said the Tower of Babel stood for confusion, but it also stood for the unity of everyone. And unity was a good thing. So even though they were confused, and it meant confusion, still this unity was a marvelous thing. And he said, now in this church, uh, we have a lot of confused people. And most of us don't know what to believe, and a good deal of the time I don't know what I believe. So he said, those of you out there who are not members yet and are very confused and don't know what to believe, this is the church for you. <laughs> well, I think that describes most churches today. And if anyone is mixed with something uh, in the Women's Association, they feel they can lay the law down to the pastor they're going to leave the church, and they leave for trifling reasons to finish. But it is a sin in the sight of God to join a church apart from the faith or to leave it for any other reason than it is faithful to the Word of God. And when it begins to be faithful and to tolerate anything else, then we have an obligation to this. We cannot be a party to something that is anti-Christian. So, this is the difference. Now, this is why the communists are so effective. They can be a fraction of one percent, but because they have the dedication, they can accomplish a great deal. But we have in this country at least 30 million, and it should be 40 million people who are members of churches that claim to believe the Bible from cover to cover. And what have they accomplished? Nothing. And we're losing the country because there is a faith without work which must be shared. And we must believe the word of God and live it. And then we will begin to see things happen. And that's why I believe what we do as we gather together in groups such as this, and there are such groups across the country, because we take God's word seriously. We know it is the foundation of liberty. It is more important than what is going on in all the big churches and among the millions. I think we, in the sight of God, shall be blessed and shall be the mischievous in terms of which we reconstruct this country. I think we have time for one more question. Yes. When I look up to this thing, people who are not going to be that doesn't sound like it. Those who just had a statement in the National Council can they, can they retain their Christianity and say in such a 
Ask questions. Sooner or later, they're going to face the showdown. And I've seen several churches where this showdown has come, and it has been appalling to see how these people who claim to be Christians feel that their membership in a church that gives them a little prestige or a women's circle that they want to be members of means more to them than the faith. One church in Northern California, in the Peninsula area, a very large church, which has maintained from its inception the facade of being genuinely evangelical. Last that facade recently, very openly and obviously, the assistant pastor who is new and was thoroughly backed up by the pastor is teaching the high school and college young people in morality. Anything was legitimate, he said, whether it was adultery or fornication or homosexuality, it should be done in love. This was quite open. And a young mother whom we know very well and who left the church went to the assistant pastor with one of her neighbors and her, one of her closest friends, who also had children under this assistant pastor's ministry, and confronted this man with it. He not only admitted it, but he defended this teaching very vigorously. The only thing he asked was, he had written on them a letter in the course of the discussion they had had, promising to analyze a, a book, and he had stated these opinions openly in writing, and he asked for the letter back. But even then, although they made copies of the letters, he lost copies. It was interesting that the young mother to whom he made these statements did not leave the church, and most of the people remained. And when a friend of ours confronted them with this fact and said, This is what you are condoning as a teaching to your children. Her speech was, Well, he's young, he'll outgrow these ideas. But they knew the man had been banned by the past. Now, this is nothing but an evasion and you can only conclude these people are not Christians. They couldn't be and tolerate that. Well, our time for this simple is time. So we'll meet again next Sunday at 2.30.